Welcome back to another episode of the Adam Schefter Podcast. We are in the heart of the preseason, getting closer to fantasy football drafts. And on this week's podcast, we will be joined by the ESPN lead college football analyst, Kirk Herbstreet, who has a new book coming out, Out of the Pocket, Football, Fatherhood, and College Game Day Saturdays. And he'll be here to talk about his book, his life, and the state of college football today. And then we'll be joined by ESPN's fantasy football rankings expert, Mike Clay, as he offers up fantasy football advice on players that you should and shouldn't be drafting in your upcoming fantasy football drafts. As we sit here in the middle of the preseason, the story undoubtedly is of the rookie quarterbacks and how soon they will be able to ascend to starting jobs. Already this past weekend, we saw Mac Jones play well in New England. We saw Justin Fields play well in Chicago. Trey Lance play well in Chicago. We know that Trevor Lawrence is starting, even though Urban Meyer has not anointed him the starter yet. And Zach Wilson will be the starter in New York. And of course, Sam Ellinger has a chance to even be the Colts opening day starting quarterback, despite the fact that he was the last of the rookie quarterbacks drafted this past spring. So there are a number of rookie quarterbacks buying for starting jobs. And it's interesting to hear each week the coaches on the good competitive teams like Bill Belichick in New England and Matt Nagy in Chicago and Kyle Shannon in San Francisco try to keep the questions, speculation to a minimum about when the young rookie quarterbacks might start. And I think Kyle Shanahan said it pretty well on Sunday when he said there's no exact time. It'll be a feel thing. He'll know when it's right. None of them appear to be in any rush to do it. But with each preseason game that's played and each time fans see Mac Jones and Trey Lance and Justin Fields, those calls are going to grow louder and louder and louder. And it's all a question of how patient these franchises can be. Can they be as patient as New England once was with Tom Brady, who played only one game as a rookie in 2000? How about Drew Brees, played only one game as a Charger? Carson Palmer, first pick of the 2003 draft, didn't play a snap his rookie year. Aaron Rodgers sat behind Brett Favre. And we saw Andy Reid provide the perfect model in Kansas City when he had Alex Smith, new ESPN analyst Alex Smith, who will be working on Sunday countdown this year, Monday night countdown, and doing a variety of roles for ESPN. When Alex Smith played the entire 2017 season before Mahomes relieved him in the last game. So when we look at the top quarterbacks in the game today, Rodgers, Brady, Mahomes, they all sat. They all sat. And so Bill Belichick and Kyle Shanahan and Matt Nagy know that the longer they can hold off this process and the longer they can keep these rookie quarterbacks on the bench, the better it'll be in the long term. The issue is they're playing well now and the calls are going to grow louder and louder and louder for them to play. And of all the storylines in the preseason, if nothing else changes, the biggest question will be how patient the coaches and organizations can be and how long they can stave off the calls for these young rookie quarterbacks to get into the starting lineup. All right, and now it's time to move on to today's podcast. Our first guest, Kirk Herbstreet, 
who has a new book out this week called Out of the Pocket Football Fatherhood and College Game Day Saturdays, written with Gene Wojcikowski, an excellent writer. And they've done a great job putting this book together. I was able to read much of it before I had the chance to talk with Kirk. And Kirk, as you will find, was self-reflective, open, vulnerable, transparent, touched on a number of issues. Without further ado, Kirk Herbstreit. Your schedule right now busy? Well, with this book, it's really busy. It's insane. Um, I didn't realize, I'm, you've probably done this. I have not. I mean, it's it's insane amount of, I'm guessing I'm doing over a hundred things between uh, you know this week and next week. So that's keeping me busy. I'd love to get back to my job and, and just, you know. <laughs> Well, that, that's, that, you know, listen, Kirk, when you write a book and you release it, when you're about to get busy, this is what happens. Your yeah. world's collide, you get overwhelmed, and you yeah. just wish that you could do the work that you're used to doing without all these outside interferences. Absolutely. Yes. And and I did the audio book for this book as well, which took, I don't know, 25 hours probably to, to do. So that was fun. I, that was the hardest part of the book was doing the audio book and, and doing the, uh, you know, just doing all these interviews. Um, but be fun to talk with you. We can talk about some ball. Oh yeah, no, no. We're, we're, we're going to get to all that stuff, but I want to get into the book as well. And and you know the, the audio book. I did audio for my book, and when you read the audio for that, it is draining beyond oh. words. You get done with that, and you're wiped out. Well, it's because when you read to yourself, you're just kind of reading. You're you know blah, 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 blah. you're just reading, reading, reading. But when you read out loud, you got to be you know you got to be energetic, and you got to like you know it's. Very draining. Very it draining. It takes it out of you. Like I've yeah. done reading for EA video games yeah. where I'd be in a studio for three, four, five days at a time in Orlando. And when I walked out of there, my brain was complete mush. And it was the same type of concept for reading a book where you've got to, for the number of pages that the book is. That, you're performing. You're yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. I've done, I did the EA sports uh, college game for about 15 years and it sounds fun to be able to do the voice for that. And then by the time you get to Thursday of that week at, at EA at Tiburon, you're just like, you feel like you've been hit by a car, you know, you're just worn out. Uh, it's amazing, you know, and it must just be like you say, the performance of it all that, that has just become so draining, you know, back to back to back days. So, so, yeah. so your book is coming out this week and it's called out of the pocket football fatherhood and college game day Saturdays. And yeah. I read most of it and I really enjoyed it, but I wanted to ask you what made you want to write a book at this stage of your life? No, I think, I think it's where Gene caught me at that time. You know, Gene Wojciechowski, who, who wrote the book with me, who's a friend, uh, a colleague, a guy who I really trust. He and I've talked about in the past, you know, about the possibility of maybe one day writing a book. And I just, I didn't really tell him this, but I just thought, yeah, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, like when I'm 70, you know, maybe down the road, I'll, I'll do that. But I didn't really think I would, I would write a book. Um, and then he approached me in the middle of quarantine. I'm talking quarantine when we're all still like, we order groceries and they, they bring them to your house. And what do we, we're being watching the news, you wipe down the groceries and then you bring them like that time. Remember that? I mean, everyone was oh, kind of, yeah, I remember that. Everybody was freaking out about where in the heck is what's going on. Well, he called me right then. 
And he's like, I got some other projects I'm thinking of working on during this time, but I really wanted to circle back to you on whether or not you want to write a book. And I was like, you know what, man, I, cause the kind of book that I wanted to write, I thought it was a good time to reflect, you know, a good time to kind of look back. This is not just a football book. It's not just college football and college game day and planet Ohio state. This is, there's a little bit more to this. And I needed somebody that I could trust. I needed somebody who would, would make me feel comfortable because I needed to talk about some things I haven't really emotionally dealt with in 40 years. Um, you know, talking about my parents and, and their divorce and being, you know, eight years old and my relationship with my dad and, you know, who's now, uh, who's now passed. So there's just a lot, there's a lot of layers there for me. And I'm not, a, I'm not a guy that talks a lot to people. I'm not a guy that really opens up and lets a lot of your feelings out. I kind of hold things in. So I kind of put a lot of these fires in my life, just, just kind of for my own well-being emotionally, I just kind of compartmentalized them, just never really fully had to deal with them. And so when Gene would talk to my mom or my sister or people that I, you know, that knew me, he, in writing the book, would say, tell me about living in Trotwood, you know, when you were five years old. And I was just like, whoa, you know, so it was a lot of those kind of moments and just looking back and and there was a lot of fun, a lot of good times and a lot of it was emotional man, to kind of relive some of that stuff that, like I said, I hadn't, I hadn't talked about or thought about in a long time. Do you think if there weren't a pandemic, this book might not have happened? For sure. It would not have happened. Yeah. So it was born out of the pandemic. Absolutely. And when I'm reading it, I was struck. What's amazing to me is what an unstable childhood you had. The fact that your parents get divorced, they both get remarried, they both get divorced, they wind up back together, you're bouncing around, going here, there, and everywhere. It was unbelievable to me that you could turn out to be the kind of child and young man and person that you are today with that kind of upbringing. How does that happen? I have no idea. I think that's why a big part of me wanted to share my story. Um, because if you were tracking a hundred kids, a hundred young boys, and you were going through what they experienced, you know, like all of us as parents, what we try to try to help our kids kind of experience to try to help them potentially have a successful life. I, I didn't check any boxes. Like my mom and dad loved me. Um, and from, from the time I was born to the time I was eight years old, I lived in the movie, the sandlot, like that was my neighborhood. Like I, we had three TV stations. We didn't have video games. We didn't have computers. You know, we had a radio. I listened to the Reds games. I was outside. We were in the Creek. We were playing freeze tag. We we're playing backyard football, wiffle ball, hitting you know, lightning bugs with wiffle ball bats. I mean, it was just the typical how neighborhood in the seventies in the United States. That was that was where I lived. And, and we had about 20 kids uh, and ranging from me at the youngest, about eight years older than me. And we were just outside constantly to whatever time of the year it was, that's the sport we were playing. And, and, and you could go outside of your back backyard and there'd be a game of you know, six to eight to 10 kids playing something. And it was just every day. And so that was, to me, that was as good as it, as it was. And then at eight years old, that world crashed. It, you know, was, my parents got a divorce. I moved out of that neighborhood. And from that point on, I just held on with everything I had. Um, my mom got, my mom who never worked, she was a homemaker. She, she got a job as selling Cadillacs. And if she sold a car or two in a month, we 
had food and we were able to eat. My dad didn't pay child support consistently. Um, so we were just, my mom was very stressed trying to try to get food on the table. Um, my sister was older and she was going off to college. It was my brother and I, who was four years older than me. And we were just struggling along. And then my mom married a guy and we moved again and uh, he was very wealthy and I didn't really like him, but I played along like I did. I played nice and just kind of faked laughed and didn't really tell anybody how I really felt. Did that for about three years. Then they got a divorce. Then I moved in with my dad who was remarried and I had a stepmom and a stepbrother. And I had a bunk bed in a, in a, in a Cincinnati uh, suburb with a kid. I didn't really you know, know that well. And I, again, played nice and got along with people. And then my dad got a divorce and then we moved into uh, where I finally settled in. So I probably went to, I don't know, from kindergarten to eighth grade, I might've gone to seven different schools. And um, finally I got to Centerville High School and that was where I stayed. Um, my parents, as you said, came full circle after everything I'd been through. And they decided to move into a house together as friends, just to give me a normal, after everything I'd been through, just a normal you know, high school experience with a mom and a dad. And a lot of people in my high school thought my parents were married. Um, they didn't really know the real story. And we just did the best we could, uh, you know, living in that house together. So what was it like to relive all these memories to Gino? Hard. Yeah. <laughs> it was so hard because I had, I had just, like I said, it was so long ago and it was, I don't think like I'm, I have four boys. Yeah. I'm imagining them going through some of the stuff that I went through and um, I don't know how you come out on the back end fairly normal. You know um, my sister and I talk about that all the time. That some of the stuff that we've, we've, we've experienced how we, we, we kind of, you know, I, I, I will say this. I think God puts you in situations because I have an incredibly, I would say, tender heart towards everybody. You know, like I, I, I don't know, I think it's the way I'm wired because of what I've seen. I, I'm the last guy that would ever look at myself or anybody above anybody in any way. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm always welcoming to anybody and everybody. And I think it's because, you know, I'm, I kind of lived most of my life on the other side of the tracks. You know, so um, that's my my comfort zone is the other side of the tracks. That's what I, that's what I knew uh, growing up. And uh, that, that's why what the hardest part for me has been getting older and being able to you, know, you have you make a little bit of money and you can do things like join a country club if you want to and take your family to the pool. And I'm like, you know, am I wearing the right thing? You know, like I pay my dues. I pay my my fees, like my allow, we allowed in here. We dress, we, we dressed. Okay. For this, like, I still can't shake that. Like I still have such a hard time when I go to a club, if I'm like, am I in the right room? Am I, am I allowed to have a hat on? You know, what's the rules? Like, that's not the world you knew. It's not, I knew, I knew, I knew nothing, <laughs> nothing about that. Nothing about that. So that's been, that's been kind of weird for me to, to, to deal with it, but. And now you put it all out there and how much of what you went through molds the type of father that you are today to your four boys. And that's again, a big part of the book. Um, the, the toughest part for me is I didn't have a dad in my house to, to learn from. 
like other than being able to fix a light bulb, you know, if it goes out, I, I, I have zero skills. Like I know nothing about anything. Like if somebody is like, oh, bring the car over. Let me take a look at it. And I, I know nothing, you know, uh, I cut grass and that was about it. Um, but for my kids, teaching them about life, um, I, I mean, my dad was a good man. And as we, I got older, uh, he was he was in my life and I wanted I wanted him to be in my life more, especially when I had kids. But it just it wasn't to be as much as I wanted anyway. But I, I think my high school football coach probably impacted me the mm. most as far as being, you know, a dad and, and being responsible and, you know, trying to teach them right from wrong. Um, I'm a huge high school football advocate because of that. I think you, you know, you're such a vulnerable stage of life at 15, 16, 17, and 18. And in my case, I had a coach who was a former Marine and just a tough guy. And I think anybody, if you would have on right now that played high school football with me, the thing that they, every one of them would say, man, he was tough or man, I I didn't agree with everything, but he changed my life. You know, so I, I would say, uh, I was lucky enough to be at a, at a great program with a great coach who who um, helped me, you know, and, and, and my baseball coach, too, in high school uh, helped me out. You mentioned that you're a big high school football advocate and you moved back to Ohio. Did you move back there so that your sons could play college football back in Ohio? So we we left Columbus uh, back in like 2011. Um, a lot of that had to do with just, it was more on me than I think it got portrayed like the fans, you know, chased me out of Columbus. It, it wasn't like that. It was just me getting used to the fanfare and getting used to, you, you, you know what this is like. Um, no one really gives you a book on how to handle fame or living in the public eye. And with four young boys uh, and with some of that noise, I just felt I had more peace of mind by just moving away from, from that, you know, and, and, and I had to be objective. I had to be honest, just like you do. And there's a tiny fraction percentage of every fan base. For me, it was Ohio state living in Columbus. That's they, they don't agree with you when you are fair or, or honest. And so um, I, I just thought it wasn't so much. They drove me out of Columbus. It was just, more peace of mind. And so that's why we moved to Nashville. My twins were in fourth grade when we, we moved. My next son was in second grade and my youngest was in, in pre-K. Fans don't always like to hear the truth about their teams, Kirk. No, no. They don't always like to hear the truth. And so they, they lash out and take it out on you sometimes. Sometimes or all the time, you know, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say, again, the overwhelming majority of all fans um, love the sport, love the passion, love everything that it's about. And they might always agree with you, but they understand, uh, you know, that, that their team's not always going to win. But there's a certain percentage of those of fans, small, very small percentage, that if the team loses, whoever their team is, it's the quarterback's fault or it's the offense coordinator's fault or it's the head coach. He's such a bonehead you know, or it's the defensive coordinator or the referee. It's never, wow, we got beat by a better team today. We, we might be better, but today – they beat us. We got to get, we got to get back. They, they don't, they can't say that. So those are the ones I think that uh, whether it's Ohio state or anybody, those are the ones you get most energy from on things like Twitter. But anyway, we moved down to Nashville in fourth grade. Uh, my twins were in fourth grade. We, they've graduated high school in yeah. Nashville. 
my middle son graduated high school just this past uh, uh, May in Nashville. And so I had my youngster who was in eighth grade and we were just kind of debating on, I had, I have two sons now at Ohio state, one at Clemson. And we were thinking, you know, both of our moms are both of our dads. My wife's dad has passed. My dad has passed. Both of our moms are, are getting up there. My mom's in her early eighties and she's in Ohio and in, in the Dayton area. And Allison's mom has had cancer. She's been battling and she's in her late seventies. And we thought between having a couple sons at Ohio state and our moms both getting older and with Chase going into ninth grade, you know, it's perfect time to get him from the ground floor into, into potentially a different high school. So when you added all those things up, <clears throat> we decided that this might be the, the right time. So we, we decided to move him and he's of my four boys. He's the only one that plays quarterback. So we looked at all the different schools in Ohio and, and um, felt that Cincinnati St. Xavier uh, was, was a great culture, a great school academically. Luke Keekley's, you know, a, a player that went uh, went to school there, um, but we just thought it was a great place for him on on a lot of different levels. That's where we we decided to take him. So the desire to be with your moms and the desire to put your youngest son in a new football culture that trumped the idea of what you once moved away from Columbus for. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, and I think also I'm different now when it comes to that noise, like anything else, the more you go through it, the more I'm just kind of calloused to it. I'm just, you're used to it. You know, when I first started getting, you suck, I can't believe you, you call yourself a Buckeye. I was like, cause I want to reason with people like, boy, I wonder why he felt that. And I learned quickly, Twitter, you don't reason with people. You don't try to set them straight. There could be a hundred positive things. And one guy says, you're a jerk. I hate everything about you and your family. And I'm like, I want to talk to that guy like, what did I say to upset you? Because I'm by nature a pleaser. So I, I really struggled with that initially. And I'll be the first one to admit that. But as you go through it for 10 years, you just kind of like, you, you know, it's more of a them thing than a me yeah. thing. I don't, I don't it doesn't really bother me uh, like it used to. I've seen you respond sometimes. And if you don't mind, I yeah. wonder, I say, why is Kirk even engaging and doing that? Don't do that. Like I always, every time I see you do that, I, I say to myself, I want to reach out to Kirk and tell him, don't bother. Like, because I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. And I, I could do that every day of my life. I could respond to the people that are criticizing and ripping me. And it's best to just tune it out. And my father's talked to me about that. How you get, as you get older, you care less and less about what people say, but, yeah. but we also are human. So you do hear some of it and you can't be completely oblivious to it. And it's not like it never affects you, but you do get better at saying, okay, so what? <laughs> Rip me, criticize me, tweet at me, call me an asshole, whatever you want. Yeah. I'm not responding. I'm going on. I'm going to keep doing my job the way that I do my job, which is the right way. And I do that probably 95% of the time, but once in a while, I think it's entertaining. I think it's kind of fun. I think my followers find it kind of enjoyable. Um, it's not getting under my skin at all. You know, if I, if I start jabbing back a little bit, it's kind of a little remind people that live in that cynical world. Hey, look, we, we, we bite back. You know, we're not, we're not just like on TV. Like if you're, if you're going to come into our real world and be, I'm big on if you're disrespectful, or if you cuss, like, I, I'm not, I, I never really attack, right. but you know, that, I might, that's I might, what the block buttons for. That's what the mute buttons for. Just, just mute them. 
Yeah, I do a ton of that too. Um, but I, I just do it more out of entertainment, almost like it's sport, you know, the sport of it, just to kind of bob and weave a little bit. And I, like I said, I think the the followers uh, enjoy it uh, probably as much as anything. I don't do it a ton. Yeah. It's almost like when my force field gets gets down, 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 down. Then I, I might throw a couple things out. Um, but otherwise, I, I do what you're suggesting. And I always think, is is muting or blocking better? You know, mute, they just don't know you did it. That's the best. Block, block sends a message like, I hate, I hate you. Like, I never want to... <laughs> I never want to hear from you ever again. So I debate sometimes, is this guy a mute guy or am I going to block this guy and just tell him to go to hell? Um, I, I do both. Yeah, I, I think it's best to just just keep moving along and mute yeah. them. And, if, you know, if you block them, then you give them the satisfaction. Oh, I know. This yeah. guy blocked me. So, so yeah. I learned not to do that either, by and large. And the only way I would ever block somebody right now is if they were offensive. Offensive. Yeah, well, that's that's yeah. They cross the line when they get offensive. Yeah, language, they cross, language, despicable, not right? Like, yeah, I don't want that person in my. I don't want them in my world when they when they get like that. So I just I just get rid of them uh, immediately. But for the most part, I like I said, I I like to have fun with it. I I think it's it's so different than when we were younger, and it was like the only way for fans to communicate was letters to the editor or, or a radio show. And now it's right on their fingertips. You know, they, they can tell people whatever they think. But to answer your question, yeah, I think just we felt it was the right time to get back um, and, and get Chase into this school and see how things go. The interesting thing is we didn't sell our house in Nashville. Kept so, it. yeah, we kept it. We love Nashville and love our house. And so we, we could always, you know, if we give it a try here for, for a few years and, and it's just not a fit, we can always, always go back to, uh, to our house back in Nashville. And it had to, it had to be hard to leave Nashville. As much as you love living there, right? Oh, this is a this is definitely a sacrifice for Chase and for being where our family needs us to be. Um, I, I, we may end up falling in love with Cincinnati, and and who knows? Maybe we'll stay back in Ohio. But we are we're open to uh, just kind of letting it fall where it may. And um, for right now, we have a very open mind towards the whole thing, and just hope it works out. Uh, great here for Chase at uh, at St. X. We were talking about that criticism. What would you say is the one piece of criticism that's most motivated you, Kirk? Um, I you know I don't as a broadcaster I don't know if there's anything that's ever motivated motivated me off of criticism. The two areas where I would tell you that I I was I was incredibly motivated was when I played at Ohio State I, in high school. I went to a school where my high school coach went out to Colorado Springs and studied Fisher to Berry's wishbone offense. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he brought that to my high school. So we went from a split veer uh, option offense my sophomore year to running a triple option, full read triple option um, out of a wishbone look. And so that's the offense I ran and we'd throw it, you know, 15 to 20 times a game. And, guys would be out of position because they'd be coming up to defend the option. I'd come off the line, you know, I'd throw for 250 or 300 yards, but it was on, you know, 10 or 15 completions because, you know, we hit a lot of guys that, um, for big plays because the safety was out of position. All of a sudden I go to Ohio state and I'm doing a seven step drop running a West coast offense. And man, I was a fish out of water. Um, and all I heard from the media was he can't throw. I ran about a four, I was six, three, 
probably 220 pounds, ran a four, six. I mean, I was more of an athletic guy than your typical drop back West coast offensive guy. And I didn't feel comfortable in the pocket for three years. So the media would, would talk to me about how I can't throw. And so I was determined to prove them wrong. So I would, th- would throw like crazy with a guy named Brian Stabline, who ended up playing with the Colts for about eight or nine years. And he would stay with me for hours and we would throw and throw and throw. Uh, that was one bit of criticism that, that helped me. And then the other one was my own criticism. When I went to college game day in 1996, I replaced a guy named Craig James, who was a star. And I didn't hear from people on Twitter, but my own sensibility told me they would watch college game day and they would see Chris Fowler, who they knew. They would see Lee Corso, who they knew. And Craig James isn't there anymore. Who's that guy? Like, I felt that. And my way of coping with that was not to be embarrassed or humiliated by that because I was a solid Big Ten quarterback, but I wasn't Desmond Howard winning a Heisman or, you know, like all these guys that are on TV, they won Heisman, won national championships, they all Americans, they won Super Bowls. I was just a solid Big Ten quarterback. And now here I am on a national show. So I use that instead of being embarrassed by that, I use that as motivation to be the hardest working analyst on TV. And, and, you know, I'm not saying I'm Tom Brady by any stretch of the imagination, but one of the reasons I love Tom Brady so much is here he is with whatever it is, seven Super Bowl rings. And if you talk to him, he still gets emotional and teary eyed because he still looks in the mirror and sees a six round draft pick as a quarterback. Yeah. Went out of oh, yeah. And, and, be, and that's genuine. And because of that, He's probably just as hardworking today with those seven rings as he was when he was coming out of Ann Arbor. And I can really relate to that in my profession. And I think that's why I have such a soft spot for him because I, I've won Emmys and I've done all these things. I call it these big games. I'm on game day and I don't hear or feel any of that. I still feel mm. like it's 1996 and I'm still that guy sitting over on the right. And people are like, okay, I know. Foul. Well, now it's Reese. I know this guy, who, who's that guy over there? I still look in the mirror and that's who I see. And so I, I, I've used that as motivation throughout my career. You know what I love when I was reading the book, Out of the Pocket, Football Fatherhood and College Game Day Saturdays by Kirk Herbstreit, Gene Wojciechowski. I loved reading that. And I love reading about your audition and your heart beating out of your chest and the sweat pouring out of you. And it reminded me of the fact when I was growing up, my friends and I always watched every Sunday the sports reporters. And we watched the parting shots from Mike Lupica and Mitch Album and Dick Shap, the great Dick Shap, um, who passed away on my 35th birthday, Jeremy's dad. And we loved that show. And I got called to do that show. And the first time that I ever did it, I'm sitting there. And all I could tell you is I'm about to do my first parting shot ever, Kirk. Wow. I'm a newspaper reporter in Denver. And it's happened only one other, one other time when I was doing sidelines with Madden and Michaels. I could feel the blood <laughs> pulsating from my toes to my brain yeah. to the point where I almost couldn't speak yeah. because it was that overwhelming. And when I was reading your book and reading about your audition for College Game Day, it sounded like you had your own type of experience where you felt completely emotionally overwhelmed sitting with Chris Fowler and Lee Corso and auditioning the way you did. Am I correct? I, very correct. But I want to hear how that your, your, your parting shot went. How, how did, I could did barely you finally... talk? I could barely talk. It was hard to get the words out. 
I managed to finish it and do it, but it was overwhelming. And the only other time it ever happened to me when, was when the first time I was doing sidelines for Al Michaels and John Madden, and they threw it down to me. They said, and now you're Al Michaels, this famous voice. Do you believe me? And now let's go to Adam Schefter on the side. And I said, holy crap, Al Michaels just threw it down to me. And I could feel the blood from my toes to my head again. But there was nothing like the first time doing the sports report. That was, it was almost suffocating. Was it on, was it, I never knew, I watched that show every week, but were the parting shots teleprompter? Were they written or, or, were, or were you just ad-libbing and just kind of talking? They were on prompter. You would have to write it for the great Joe Valerio in advance keep it to a certain time limit. So, 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 so at least you had teleprompter to help. If you didn't have the teleprompter. No, 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 no. Yes. You had, you had teleprompter. I could barely get a word out of my mouth and it was stuck together and I could feel the blood. And when I got done with the show, you could have put me to sleep because I was so emotionally spent because the adrenaline was coursing through my body in a way I've never felt it before. Isn't it fun to be able to look back at those moments because you survived it. Now you've had a brilliant career, but isn't it awesome to kind of look back and, and be vulnerable and, and be okay with being open about how you feel. That's, that's what I love. I I identify with it because you said you got through your audition and you didn't feel like you did well no, you man. Hard on yourself. Oh, man. And then they call you as you're in the airport in Detroit and tell yeah. you, you got game day. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so true, dude. I, I got through that audition. And first of all, there was something about Chris Fowler and Lee Corso and I'm 25 years old, yeah. 25. And, and I'm sitting, they, I come out and I introduce myself and there's people all around the set and there's just, you know how live TV can be like stress and this wasn't live, but just the, the energy of live TV, the people that create it, it's just a lot of noise. And just, it was just, it was freaking me out. And Lee was very nice. Oh, oh you're going to do great. You're going to do great. And then the music started. And when the music started, I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. my chest was boom, oh, yeah. boom, boom. And I could just feel when my chest does that, we got a problem because now I'm going to get, I'm going to get warm, you know, and thank God I could keep my focus on whatever it was we were talking about. And we did a normal, we did like a six minute segment of college game day and Chris, you know, welcome everybody to college game day. And Chris did his normal thing and his voice. And he turns to go, hey, we're with the coach and the coach did his, boom, hey, look at this guy, you know, and I just, I, I kind of had fun with coach and, but I think I'd sweat like literally falling off of my chin, you know, like just falling. And I'm like, do I wipe it? Do I ignore it? I mean, I'm dead. I'm a dead man walking right now. And we did the whole segment and it looked like I jumped into a swimming pool. I was so uptight. And, but what I said, I think was okay, clearly because they hired me, but I don't remember what I said. It was like the whole thing. I just remember being hot and being uncomfortable. And then it, okay, Chris ends the segment and uh, Lee's like, okay, he had to catch a flight. It was over like that. Everyone's shaking hands. Next thing I know, they escorted me out. They got me into a car. And before I knew it, I was in a car driving to Bradley to the airport and by myself in the back of a car, like what just happened? (laughs) I'm like, Like, did that go the way I wanted or not? Like, 
oh my god and it goes and it's so quick and you think of all the things you could have done exactly. and all the things you did wrong exactly. right exactly yeah and they told me they told me before i even came in they said mo davenport who ended up i feel like changing my career mo told me listen you're a young guy you're not going to get this job, um, but it'd be really good for your experience just to go through the audition experience of a show of this magnitude at 25 years old. Just come on in and, and uh, give it a shot. That's what he told me before I got there that I wasn't going to get the job. So I was figuring, man, I'm going to have to hit like a like a home run over at Field of Dreams in Iowa, you know, Tim Johnson walk off to, to be able to have some kind of uh, opportunity to maybe get it. And then when I did what I did, I felt like I struck out looking, you know, with the bases loaded with a chance to win it. So I just went home like, oh, well, you know, and I was doing a, I was already hired by ESPN. I was actually doing arena football that year. You'll yeah. love this. Uh, you read it with Kurt Warner. I mean, that was yeah. the year that Kurt Warner, I was working with Todd Christensen. And so I went back to my beat. I left Bradley and I flew and I flew to wherever, you know, the next game was, you know, I was on the road. We, 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 were past, we, were, we were past being a medical supplies rep at that point in time, Kirk. That yeah. wasn't going to happen. Yeah, no. So just real quick on that, when I got out of school, I was a business major at Ohio State, marketing major. And one of the cool things that at that time, Ohio State did, a guy named Larry Romanoff would help introduce you to people, business people in the community. And I had Whitby Pharmaceuticals was one of the companies I interviewed with three or four different times. Uh, they were ready to hire me. I interviewed with Worthington Industries. And the only one that was going to keep me in Columbus was the pharmaceutical company. So I, I definitely wanted to stay in Columbus. I was going to take this job. It was a really good job. If you hit all your numbers, I mean, you can maybe make six figures, company car, 401k. Well, I floated the idea to a local AM radio station about, hey, if you guys ever need a former Buckeye. Back then, there were no former Buckeyes in the media anywhere. And right. hey, hey, if if you ever think about a local Buckeye helping you out on the radio, let me know. I'd love to help you out. And they got back to me a few months later and said, you know, I, I graduated in June. This was probably April or May. They get back to me in like June or July and say, we want to hire you. We're going to pay you $12,000 and no benefits, no future. It's not like I knew, oh, ESPN's behind that or game days behind that. It was no no idea what was what, what this would lead to. Yeah. But you know what, man? I grew up listening to talk radio. I grew up listening to being a big sports fan. So I turned down the business opportunity, which every person, parents, family, friends, my girlfriend at the time, everybody was like, you got to go take that job. Are you crazy? And I turned it down and I took a $12,000 radio job that I had no idea what it would lead to, but I loved it. I loved it. And that that's... And that's the path that what I always talk to college kids about is find your passion, find your, I don't care how much money you're going to be paid, find something you love. You get to put your head on your pillow on a Sunday night and you look forward to another week of work instead of dreading it. And you're making good money, but you can't stand it. And eh, why am I in this job? Find something great. And that's the lesson I learned uh, is find your passion and, and chase it. And I, I, I did, you know, by, by going through that exercise. So when did you know that college game day was going to be college game day? When was the moment it really took off in your mind? I, I'd love to hear if Chris were on here, I'd love to hear what he thinks. But to me, I was started on the show in 96 and there'd be a couple hundred people around the show when we would do it. Um, and it started to grow and grow and grow 97, 98, 99 is probably the time when Michael Vick was at Virginia Tech 
And Virginia Tech was playing in in big games, and it was new for them. I'll give credit to Frank Beamer for being the first coach to say, this college game day show kind of puts, it's the new stamp of approval that this program has arrived. He was the first one to welcome game day in. Mm. We're we're basically a 48 hour infomercial when we come on your campus, because all the work we do from sports center and college football live, everything we do on Friday and the whole day on Saturday. And he embraced it. He challenged the Hokie fan base College game days come into our campus. Let's show them, roll out the red carpet. Let's show them how big of a deal hokey football is here at Lane Stadium in Blacksburg. And by challenging them on a night game, they played it Saturday night. Game day back then was 11 a.m. to 12. And he had, Lane Stadium must have had 20,000 fans. Now, keep in mind, we're used to having a few hundred people around the set. Yeah, They had 20,000 people in the lower level of Lane Stadium and game day the set inside the stadium. And I looked over my shoulder and I was just like, cause I, it looked like the game was getting ready to start. The game's at seven o'clock, eight hours later, you look over your shoulder and it's just the entire lower section of 20,000 is at that time inside lane stadium. And that point on everybody tried to outdo Virginia tech and everybody, every coach started to look at it through that same lens that, that Frank Beamer did. Like, we need game day on our campus. We need – Urban Meyer used to fight and claw. When we went to Utah, when he was the head coach at Utah, it was the biggest deal in the world that game day was coming to Utah to do a college game day. It was a year they went to the huh. festival. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's such a different dynamic now from when I started on it uh, way, way back, you know, 25 years ago. Few other quick game day questions. What's your favorite college campus to go visit? Uh, you know, eliminating my alma mater. I mean, I love always love going back to Ohio State. Uh, that that's the campus has changed Still. so much, man. Um, but I, if I were to eliminate that, I, I really love going to Penn State, especially when it's a whiteout. I love that that fan base. I think they 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 get it. They love the sport. Eugene, Oregon, is a fun spot to go to when the Ducks are good. Eugene, Oregon, where game day starts at 6 a.m. And it's, it's all you can do is it's you can't see them at 6 a.m., but you can hear them. And then all of a sudden the sun comes up and you start to see there's just a sea of, of humanity. And so anybody who tells you the Pac-12 and love college football would be surprised if they if they went to Eugene. Um, in the SEC, they're, they're, they're all so interchangeable. You know, they, they all are just so rabid. What, the, what fans tell you about LSU at night, if you've never been to Baton Rouge to take in a, a LSU game at night, that's probably just a notch above. I mean, they start tailgating on Thursday. Uh, forget, you know, it's games on Saturday. So I, I love going down there because uh, I love the cuisine when you go down there. Oh, yeah. And who's the most memorable guest you would say that you've had on the show? And I know there have been many, but is there somebody that stands out to you, Kirk? I would probably give, I'd probably give Katy Perry the, the nod because of – her performance on the show, she she was incredibly well prepared and delivered uh, in a big way when we were at the Grove for an Alabama Ole Miss game. Will Ferrell, I mean, I, I'm a huge Will Ferrell guy. So anytime Will Ferrell comes on, he's he's hilarious. And the other one is Bill Murray. We've had Bill Murray on a couple of times. He he uh, he he body slammed Lee Corso like WWE style uh, one time at a Florida State Clemson game, which which was fun. So you're right. We've had a lot of great ones, but uh, but a, a couple of those stand out. And who is the one quarterback this year you expect to make a jump into the NFL 
So we'll be talking about him on draft night that we might not be talking about him as much right now. A guy a little bit off there, a Joe Burrow sort of character that you think has a chance to really explode onto the college football scene this year? Um, I, I would say the, the Matt Corral kid at Ole Miss, I think has a chance to, to really take off and, and maybe go to another level. Um, you know, he's, he's in an offense that I, you know, with lane and what they do, I think is going to give him a chance, I, I think to, to put up big numbers. And I, people forget how highly touted he was, you know, when he came out of, uh, out of high school. I mean, he was as, as big, as big a name in the high school game as there was. And he just, he had some tough, some really tough struggles there early. Um, and then eventually he kind of obviously has found his way. Um, he would be one. I'm going to try to find you. Rattler kid at OU is, is kind of an obvious one. Let me give you one that, that I think will, will probably take off. I, I don't know if he's off the radar, but Malik Willis at Liberty. You know, time I've heard that name on this podcast. We had, Quincy Avery on. Okay. Quincy Avery raved about. Him. Yeah, I think raved he, compared him to Mahomes. Did he really? Wow. Yes, he did. Well, he's got a chance. I, I would agree with Quincy. I think he's got a chance to. Again, it's one of those guys, kind of like Trey uh, uh, Lance last year. You know, these guys that are a bit off the radar with the games that they play and the teams yeah. that they play. But I think more and more guys are are starting to kind of t- kind of show the NFL that they can play, and I think the media is starting to kind of buy in. And we've had both those guys from North Dakota State, but I think it's opened up opportunities for some of these other guys at lesser known programs. So he would be probably the guy that I would say has the, the biggest chance. The Jaden Daniels kid after his freshman year, he's in Arizona State with Herm. He, yeah. he was lights out. And then, you know, COVID hit. He didn't have a great year last year. But if he gets on track, he could be another guy. I think it could have a great year. The last thing I'll leave you with about your book, Out of the Pocket, Football Fatherhood and College Game Day Saturdays, Kirk Herbstreet, Gene Wojcikowski, November 21st, 1987, you come and visit the big house in Ann Arbor. I'm a junior in college. Our paths almost crossed then because I'm covering the football team back then. <laughs> you could have come to Michigan. I, know. I could have written about you in college. <laughs> Maybe you would, the media would have been kinder and gentler to you in Ann yeah. Arbor than yeah. it was in Columbus. And we could have started working together way back when. That's before cool. it even happened later on at ESPN. So I think you made a big mistake going to Columbus. <laughs> I'm just going to say that for the record right now, Herbie. Oh, I love it. I love, you know, actually, you probably read it. I, I actually addressed not just that story that day when I was at the game as a, as a Michigan recruit and, and Earl, it was the year he got fired. And my dad and I were in there talking to Bo after the game. And your dad and, wanted you to go play for Bo. Yeah, he, he did. But I think part of him was torn. Like he loved Bo and wanted me to play for Bo, but he couldn't imagine me wearing that uniform. You know, that would have been the hard part. And for me too, the way I was raised, I, I didn't really look at things through a, I guess the lens of objectivity. objectivity. Yeah. I just, I, I really, I was, when they said John Cooper was going to be the head coach, I'd never heard of John Cooper. I didn't know anything about him. I just was glad they finally had a coach, had a head coach. And I, I said, I'm going to Ohio State because I was just tired of, of being recruited. And I just wanted to go. I knew I was going to go to Ohio State regardless. I didn't know what offense he ran. Think about that. Think about a kid today. Doesn't care, he doesn't care what offense they run. Don't know who the name of the offensive coordinator is. Don't, barely don't even know the head coach. Sign me up. I'm coming. I'm ready. Like, who does that? Who does that? Meanwhile, you got Jerry Hanlon, who's knocking my door down, getting, trying to get me to go to, yeah, trying to get me to go to Michigan. I, I grew up 
worshiping Bo, except for one Saturday out of the year because of my dad's respect for him. And he was a, a, a friend and they ran an offense that fit exactly with what I would have liked to have done in college. But, you know, See? there was a guy from free. There was a guy from Fremont, Ohio. He came to Michigan, did OK. Yeah. There was Desmond. Desmond was from Cleveland. He yeah. There have been a bunch. There have been a oh, bunch, yeah. a oh, bunch yeah. of Ohio guys. We got to get Jimmy Harbaugh back to recruiting those Ohio guys. They they uh, he's recruiting out of the Northeast now. They got to get into Ohio again. Uh, people have said to me that's one of their issues that Michigan needs to address that they need to go back into I, Ohio. I feel like when they were Michigan, like the Michigan we, you and I grew up with, if you go back and look at their roster, now you may not beat Ryan Day right now on the on the top fifteen kind of guys, but you go 16 down to 50. I mean, you're still going to find some really talented guys. And I, I just always remember being a kid looking at Michigan's roster, not just the high profile guys, but offensive linemen, linebackers, you know, oh, yeah. safe, Ohio, just Ohio, all over Ohio. And that's Bo, of course, was from Barberton and a lot yeah. of assistant coaches were from Ohio, but uh, it, it's not been that way as much in recent years. Well, we've got the Herb Streets back in Ohio. We've got a young quarterback prospect in Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> Maybe Michigan will go back in there and swoop in and finally get a Herb Street there to come into Michigan. To let, me ask, let me ask you this. I hope Jim Harbaugh stays there forever. I hope because yep, I, I wanted I, it's such a great story. And I was a big fan of his as a player. That's why I wore number four because I, I liked him. Hmm. But tell me this. If he struggles. Would they would they pull the trigger? You think they would pull the trigger and and I, I, you know I know that there's been a lot of I've never heard that from anybody. I know it's it's a very popular narrative. Well, the AD, but, you know, he adjusted his contract. And yeah, it, and and they 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 made a lot of changes to this staff. Correct. I just my my answer to people when they say that to me is if you're not if you're going to let Jim Harbaugh go, who are you hiring? I always say that. Who are you going to hire? Are, are are they going to go hire Steve Speck? As the, as to coach Michigan is that is the it, only two guys I think that they would even talk try to get if it ever came to that and I and I'm yep. not saying I, I hope again Go ahead. I hope he stays there forever two guys yes, that I think they'll look at Matt Campbell at Iowa State yep I heard he's a great leader Luke Fickle at UC who's got both those guys now have top ten teams at Iowa State and Cincinnati now Luke Fickle I'm not saying he would go but if I were Michigan. Um, he's an Ohio State guy. I think he has the most snaps in Ohio State history. He was an assistant coach there forever until he took the Cincinnati job. Uh, it wouldn't shock me if I were in charge of Michigan. Those would be the two names. If 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 the job were to ever open up, those would be two names I would look at. But if I were in charge of Michigan, I'm keeping Jim. I am too. I would. Too. Okay. Yeah. That makes I'm two of us, right? I, I'm saying if they ever made a move, that's that's what. Or if he ever leaves to go to the NFL, that's what I would do. But I'm with you, man. I. I think he's great for the college game. I hope he gets it going. And uh, I, hope, I hope we get back to those Ohio State-Michigan games when everything's on the line and it's the way it should be in, in, the, in the late November. You know, my son, who's going into his senior year at Michigan, he still has not been to a Michigan-Ohio State game because of the pandemic and attendance and travel. Oh. And so he's hoping in his senior year this year, he's actually leaving our family Thanksgiving time, or so he says, to go to his first Michigan Ohio State game as a senior in college. Can you ah, imagine that? Wow, like that's how distorted our world is right now. Yeah, he's going into his senior year and he still hasn't been to one of those games to understand what it means. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. Well, hey, Herbie, I want to thank you very much for the time. The new book, 
Out of the pocket, football, fatherhood, and college game day Saturdays. I think you're going to need a bestseller to go along with all your Emmys and all your success <laughs> and all the great things that you've done for you. You need another accomplishment to put on your resume. Well, I appreciate you it. To go back in case this doesn't work out, you need to go back to being a medical supplies rep. <laughs> Hey, thanks so much for having me on, buddy. I appreciate it, and I hope to see you this fall. That'd be great. Good luck with the book, Herbie. I enjoyed our time today. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Kirk Herbstreet. And that was probably the longest and most personal conversation I've ever had with him. Our paths don't cross very often. We've been in the studio together a couple of times, never been on the road with him, have done a few shows together, but have never really had the chance to sit down with him the way I did there and talk openly and honestly uh, the way we just did. And a lot of respect for Kirk Herbstreet, tremendous at his job, has the new book, really enjoyed that, offering some real insights into what his life is like. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. I do, you do, we all do, big, small. And when we keep them bottled up, as I sometimes have had happen in the past, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Adam today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Adam. From Kirk Herbstreet to ESPN's fantasy football rankings expert, offering you tips on how to get ready for your fantasy football draft, Mike Clay. Welcome to the podcast, Mike Clay. Yeah, uh, good to be here, Adam. I appreciate it. Um, I'm, I almost didn't make it. I was actually at the Hall of Fame this past weekend, and uh, what was it Saturday night around midnight? My flight got canceled for Sunday morning, so that was fun to work through. May have had an adult beverage or, uh, or four that night, so figuring that out was a lot of fun. But anyway, we're here. We're good to go. Uh, ready for the marathon this week. Wait, you went to the Hall of Fame the weekend after everybody else went to the Hall of Fame? Exactly. You can't, you know, it's just like when, you know, you go to Disney World at the right time when the crowds aren't too big, right? Planned it out perfectly. And what do you think of it? Oh, it's great. It's great. We've been doing uh, uh, drafts out there. We did a fancy draft at an auction for the King's Classic on Saturday. You get to walk around and kind of, uh, you know, just, just enjoy the space, enjoy the town. It's a nice little area there. I think they have, if you name a restaurant, a chain, they have it in Canton. They have everything. It's actually unbelievable how much they have packed into that town. But the Hall of Fame is awesome, so we had, a, we had a great time out there. Best restaurant chain in Canton, Ohio is. I have my own answer. I'll share in a moment. What's, what do you think? Uh, we like we like jerseys. We go to jerseys all the time. I'm going to vote Mission Barbecue, Mike. Oh, that's great. We have them up here. We have one in Southington. We have a Mission Barbecue. Yeah, they're, they're fantastic. Uh, a, tr- a tremendous place. A tremendous place. All right, Mike, everybody is getting ready. For their fantasy football drafts, and I figured we would turn to you for counsel, guidance, wisdom as to the players we should and shouldn't be selecting. So I know it's a very broad, vague, ambiguous question, 
But give me some guys who in the drafts you've done so far and the drafts you will do in future weeks, you've been piling up over and over and over again. Yeah, and, and look, you, you could do this by tier almost, by round. And, and actually, I have an article up at ESPN Plus, my ultimate draft board. I do this every year, the week of the uh, of the marathon. So I'll cover a couple of names here, but you could obviously go sort through that. But, uh, you know, the, the big question is for a lot of people, you know, Mike, can I take Travis Kelsey in the first round? Is that a viable strategy, right? And because running back dries up quickly, we know that that's always the case. And it's, it's certainly the case this year. And I think the answer is yes. And it's really because of just how dominant he has been relative to the other tight ends. For example, I have him projected for about 60 more points than any other tight end. That just shows you the level he's at. In fact, last year, you look at the number seven and eight scoring tight ends, Mike Kosicki and Rob Gronkowski, he had more points in them combined. So think about that. The people who have an average starting tight end in your league, they're going to get doubled up by the, the person who takes Travis Kelsey. More than likely, of course, assuming he's healthy. So I think it is a viable strategy. Uh, so I'm, I'm fine with him. You know, if you want to take a running back, I'm fine with that. There's a lot of talent at that spot. But yes, if you're feeling Kelsey in the first round, uh, you can do that. Um, you know, second round, though, you know, if I, if I, especially if I go Kelsey, I want to get a running back in round two. And this is probably my favorite player in drafts this year. It's Antonio Gibson for Washington. Wow. I mean, wow. I'm, I'm trying to get him wherever I can. Uh, you know, I grew up an Eagles fan, Matthew, we know likes the Washington football team. So this one, you know, on the fan side stings a little bit to have to be pumping up all these Washington football players. But, uh, look, the ceiling is just so high for this kid. He was, he was with the wide receivers at the combine last year. You know, we, we thought maybe early in his career, he would be playing wide receiver, not running back. And sure enough, he comes in with like 30 career carries in college, piles up all them carries, plays at a high level, scores almost double digit rushing touchdowns. And wasn't even used that much as a pass catcher. We haven't seen that part of his game just yet. So I think they expand that role this season. And I think perhaps the my bold take my bold take this offseason is that he will be that number one scoring fantasy running back. So uh, I think he has it. Wow. I think he has the skill set. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I think he could do it, Adam. How high is too high for him? Well, the, the only the only problem he has, the only reason you can't really slip him into the first round is there's so many other talents, right? You know, McCaffrey, Cook, Barkley, Kamara, Henry, Zeke, Taylor, Eckler, Jones, Chubb. I mean, there's so much talent in that range. But after those 10, I have met 11. And if you wanted to put him a few spots higher than that, I'm not going to argue with you about it. I can't, wow, that, that's surprising. All right, let's, let's go to the second round, Mike. Uh, give me some guys there from your ultimate draft board. And for people who want to read more about it, they can read about the ultimate draft board on ESPN.com, right? Yes, absolutely. It's uh, over there at ESPN+. Plus. Yeah, so... Again, I'm, I'm leaning Kelsey or running back in the first. I'm leaning Gip, Gibson in the second. Um, after that, look, I think you're getting a discount on some talented young running backs right now. And you could even dip into the running back position in round three. Now, that's about the cutoff. After that point, it really dries up. So this is where you want to kind of attack. DeAndre Swift or Miles Sanders are the two guys that jump out. Actually, I've seen Swift or, uh, Sanders fall to the fourth in, in uh, recent 12-team leagues. So he's becoming really interesting. Obviously, there's some concerns about there uh, out there about Boston Scott work being worked in and Jordan Howard and could they use a committee, but look, this guy has all the pedigree, all the talent. It was second in yards per carry in the NFL last year, tons of big playability was seventh as a rookie among running backs and receiving yards. So that's in his back pocket as well. So mm -hmm. like him swift, even with Jamal Williams there, I think he'll be so involved as a pass catcher that you're not going to be uh, too worried about him paying off as an RB two. So uh, those are guys I'm looking at in this, in the third round, but, Adam, this is really the part where 
especially late in round three, you really have to start thinking wide receiver, right? Like late round three and especially round four. Yep. Uh, because this is where all the talent is. I mean, Terry McLaurin and Keenan Allen, Allen Robinson, Adam Thielen, I love this year, just like last year, Deontay Johnson. And, and this was the strategy last year. You know, I said, if you don't take a wide receiver in the fourth round, you're doing it wrong. You're making a mistake. And sure enough, everyone, every wide receiver that had a fourth round ADP last year paid off, except for Cortland Sutton, who of course got injured uh, early in the season. Otherwise it was, you know, everybody was pretty much top 20. So I stand by that this year. I think it's the same thing. It pick your spot, you know, or pick your player. There's a lot of talent in that spot. Pick your favorite receiver, and it'll probably pay off for you in a big way. So you would prescribe to the theory that you should go running back, tight end early, and wait on wide receivers till round four, five, six, like that idea. I I think that's a perfectly viable strategy. And even if you don't go Travis Kelsey, let's say you start running back, running back you can then just start attacking receiver, you know, one after the other, third round, fourth round, fifth round, sixth round, you go four in a row, five in a row, six in a row. There's so much volume of talent in there that it could pay off for you in a big way. And there's, look, I'm okay with Kelsey early, but there's values at that, at that position. Otherwise, right. You have the uh, rounds four and five, Mark Andrews, TJ Hawkinson. If you're a Kyle Pitts guy, you can take him there. And Logan Thomas, you know, he's going in the eighth round. He's one of my favorite values in fantasy this year. The only problem is I like too many Washington players, Adam. I like Gibson. I like Terry McLaurin. Curtis Samuel comes super cheap. You can take a late flyer on Diami Brown. Logan Thomas is a steal in the eighth round. So I think I'm going to have a lot of the Washington offense this season. I don't know if that's good or bad. And Fitzy, the quarterback is a late round flyer. Why not? Right. 100%. Especially if you're in a tournament style league or you just want to take a shot on maybe a two quarterback league and you want to stack up you know sometimes it's a viable strategy to stack a little bit you can take fits late and then stack him up with guys like like gibson you know again who i think see to catch more passes certainly curtis samuel who's gone late certainly logan thomas or mclaurin you have a lot of options and they're not too expensive all right let's move to the mid to late rounds mike give me some guys on the ultimate draft board the article available on espnplus.com again by mike clay where he gives you the ultimate drip, or give me some guys in the mid to late rounds you think that you have targeted and will continue to target. Yeah, so like I'm looking at Brandon Ayuk in the fifth round, then I'm going to quarterback. I like that kind of Lamar Jackson, Dak Prescott area of the draft. So that's kind of where I am until the middle rounds. And in the middle rounds, I'm looking at, again, more, you know, this is the point where you have most of your line to fill out. You're looking for a little more upside. So uh, I'm looking at Denver's wide receivers, Jerry Judy or Cortland Sutton, whoever falls to you in this range. I think it's a good target. We saw some good rack ability from Judy in the first preseason game. He looks the part. I mean, Drew Locke, just get the guy the football this year. You know, his his uh, catchable rate, uh, catchable target rate was so low last year. They couldn't get it to him. He couldn't make enough plays. Did have some drops, but uh, you'll see that occasionally from, from wide receivers, and they can erase it pretty quickly. So Judy and Sutton, who, again, I loved him last year. I think he's a tremendous talent, still an underrated talent. Uh, he was really good in his second year in the NFL, but of course had that injury. So, you know, pick your pick which one you like more. Right? They're both available in the middle rounds. I'm going to try to get uh, one of those in most of my drafts. Um, I mentioned Logan Thomas in the eighth, but if not tight in there, LaVisca Chanel is one of my favorite wow. targets this season. You know, I know there's been some Marvin Jones hype and they have DJ Chark and they're going to use, uh, you know, they're going to obviously use James Robinson a lot as a runner and ETN as a pass catcher, but Chanel. I, the guy is a outstanding athlete. He was a second round pick last year. And look, they used him most in the short area last year. He was a situational player most of the year. They used him a lot in the final month of the season, but even missing three games, being a part-time player, 
He finished 46, the wide receiver in fantasy points, right? He's being drafted around wide receiver 40 right now. So you're telling me with the quarterback improvement, a better offense, he's in year two, always a year where these guys make a leap, that he's not going to do better than 40, jumping from 46 to 40. It doesn't add up for me. I think Chanel could potentially be one of the breakout players in the NFL this season. So in the middle rounds, I'll take him all day long. You know, he reminds me of Debo Samuel a little bit. Yes, love that. Yeah. Right, a little bit. Uh, All right, Mike, give me some late round flyer sleepers that you believe, again, have some real upside, a guy that you always can steal. And and listen, we're in a 16-team War Room League draft in ESPN. And it's funny because we talk so much about the early, middle, and even the late rounds. And usually it's a selection that you make in round 12, 13, 14, the mm-hmm. throwaway pick, the one you're not thinking about a lot that can make a roster. Like I remember Stefania Bell two years ago took a guy that the Jaguars front office recommended to me. And I heard them tell me about the name and I didn't take him. And she took DJ Chark in the last round of the draft. Mm-hmm. And he was unbelievable that year. And if you get a value like that in the late rounds, it can make your fancy team. So give me a couple of guys in the late rounds, a flyer that you like this year, Mike. Yeah, 100%. And Chark is actually, if you're, we're on video, like everybody's just hearing audio, but over my shoulder, there is a Chark jersey because he was I see. my guy that year. I loved him that year. Uh, and the reason is something I'm about to talk about. It's, it's a perfect transition to this topic because when you're looking for late round flyers, Think pedigree, think you, think year one, year two wide receivers who are picked on day one or two. Those are the guys that come out of nowhere. I mean, you're starting to see, you know, KJ Hamler. No one's drafting KJ Hamler, and he had what an 80 yard touchdown in the first preseason game. You know, we don't know. He's not a he's not a sure thing by any means, but he was a second round pick last season. He's in that Denver offense I was just talking about, and we saw Teddy Bridgewater. If he's the quarterback, I mean, last year he supported three top top 30 fantasy receivers. One of two quarterbacks to do that in the NFL. So who knows? I mean, that's the kind of guy you're looking for late. So that's one example. You can get him with one of your last picks. Uh, if you're looking at rounds 11 through 13, uh, my top target's Henry Ruggs. Same kind of thing. A little, un- a little underwhelming as a rookie with the Raiders. I don't think it was really his fault. You know, his he averaged three and a half targets a game, never had more than five in a single game. I mean, it doesn't make sense. And they're going to have to expand his role in the second season. The, he was the first receiver picked last year. He has tons of speed. Tons of talent, and you can get him in the double-digit round. So Henry Ruggs is a guy. Uh, Jalen Rager is another one. Underwhelmed as a rookie, but still in a great position as a full-timer uh, in the Eagles offense. Gabriel Davis in that three-receiver and four-receiver heavy Buffalo high-scoring offense. The Moores, Elijah Moore, Rondale Moore, second-round picks this year. Ah. Looking at those guys as well. Um, so uh, tons of options at wide receiver, right? And uh, how about one more? I'll give you one at a different position, Adam, right? Because this is a guy that I've I've taken a lot. I got in, took him in the auction on Saturday, took him in the draft Saturday, and and maybe you can figure out who this is, right? So look at the past five seasons, right? Every year, pretty much every year, we're in the late rounds of our drafts and we're looking for high upside guys. And mm-hmm. in 2017, it was like, eh, this guy was a top five pick last year. I'll take a shot on Carson Wentz. And then in 2018, it was like, all right, here's the first rounder. This Pat Mahomes guy is one NFL star. We'll take a late flyer on him. And Deshaun Watson that same year. And then the next year it was Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen that Tua. you could get late. In Tua. Tua. Yeah. And then Kyler Murray, of course, last year. So yes, Tua, right? I mean, tank for Tua. Everyone loved throwing that around. There was so much Tua hype. Everybody loved this guy. 
he he's in and out of the lineup as a rookie. Now everyone's down on him. You can get him in the 13th round right now. He was a, he's a top five talent. They built that offense around him. He is so much help at the pass catcher position. Unlike last year when he was throwing the, you know, all due respect to these guys, Durham Smythe and Matt Collins and Isaiah Ford. He, this is where his targets were going half the time. So he's in a much better spot. And again, he's available so late. So if he struggles the first few weeks and is not a good fantasy quarterback, you cut him loose. If he busts out and has a 400 yards and four touchdowns week one, you just hit the lottery for sure and potentially have a, one of the breakout players in the NFL. So he's a guy I'm all over in the later rounds. So that was the guy you were going to, and I guess before you even got to the finish line there, correct? I wasn't even done. It's almost like you do this for a living, Adam. <laughs> and you got one sleeper running back for me later on? uh sleeper running back uh let's see here um you know i was i i would have probably leaned zach moss but because uh he's injured right now that one's tougher how about this guy this guy uh this guy tweeted at us all at the, the fantasy focus team the other day he wants to get into fantasy football now i believe he's going to come on the fantasy focus podcast uh, here in the near future aj Dillon. you know mm. he's uh again kind of a mid-round guy but he you know this guy's big you know this is he's his frame is like Derrick Henry, and uh, he has an opportunity with Jamal Williams gone to play a big role for the Packers. So uh, and a big time opportunity for him this season. And, and again, maybe not the best example because he's a mid round uh, guy. But if you're looking for the later rounds right now, it's got to be someone like Philip Lindsay. You know, it looks like he's going to be the starter for Houston. David Johnson's going the wrong direction. Lindsay's going up again, super free in drafts uh, right now. Malcolm Brown, another one who got the start for Miami. So that shows you, you know, we say the preseason doesn't matter. People like to throw that around. It matters. And you can learn things. And we learned some things here in week one. And guys like Malcolm Brown and Philip Lindsay are trending up, right? If you're drafting in the next week or so, you can still get them at a major discount. And that very well uh, could go on for the next month. You know, you, people just aren't going to jump on these guys. And there's an opportunity to find a potential steal. It's interesting how the narrative gets set in the preseason and mm -hmm. it's almost as if the entire fantasy community buys into the same storylines. And then there are storylines outside of the common narrative. And it's the smart, fancy football players mm -hmm. that can figure out the guys like a Philip Lindsay, a KJ Hamler, a Tua, Malcolm Brown, that don't fit into that narrative. There aren't the trendy picks that we're talking about early on that can make a fantasy team, right? Like that to me is, a skill and something that can make the difference between a winning and a losing season. We talked about all those things. Who are some guys early, mid, late that you are uncomfortable with that you are not and have not taken anywhere and will not take anywhere? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that uh, at running back, you know, Michael Carter and Trey Sermon make me a little nervous just based on where they're going. Right. So yeah. Michael Carter has jumped up to like the sixth round at times. And you see Trey Sermon in that same vicinity. And first of all, I mean, you know, people get mad when I say stuff like this. Right. Uh, they were drafted in the in the third and fourth round. They're third and fourth round rookies in the NFL. The history for these guys is, is not good. You know, in third round and especially fourth round rookie backs do not produce in fantasy. This has been going on for a long time. You look at that sort of stuff and it's, it's really damning. So that bothers me for sure. And people say, well, that doesn't really matter. You know, look at player X, look at James Robinson last year. Look, those rare 98th percentile exceptions are not the rule. And if you start betting fifth and sixth round picks on these guys, it's not going to work for you. And actually, again, we saw that with Michael Carter getting all that hype building up to that first preseason game. He's the guys, they're, they're lead back. They don't have competition. 
And then Tevin, uh, Tevin Coleman gets the veteran rest, which suggests maybe he's the number one. And we're not sure on this yet, but maybe. And then Ty Johnson starts and is their lead back. So, you know, slow your roll on these guys because history just says we don't know if they're good or not. We're not good or we don't know if they're good NFL players yet. Um, even half of the first round picks probably won't pan out as good NFL players. It's unfortunate, but it's realistic. And if you want to make smart decisions, you have to remember uh, that it takes a lot for these guys uh, to supplant veterans who have been around the NFL for a while and, and earn 200, 250 touches. So I would say those are kind of the highlights for me, those guys that are low pedigree that are being o- overdrafted, like Amon Ross St. Brown for the, the Lions. I mean, Adam, if you look at the, again, say the past decade in the NFL, find a find a wide receiver picked after round three who was a top 30 fantasy receiver. There's one. It's Tyreek Hill. Wow. One. So you're going to take that flyer on a Monroe St. Brown with that ceiling? You know, is he the next Tyreek Hill? You're just going to do it because he has a path to a potential big role in the Lions offense? I think you have many better options. Guys that were picked earlier who have a path to a big role as well. And again, Amon Ra is another guy who hasn't worked his way up the depth chart. It's It's a a weak depth chart relative to the rest of the NFL. Like a lot of guys have a lot to prove. He hasn't even done that yet. So, you know, those are the kind of guys that I try to shy away from in favor of guys that are proven players and certainly high pedigree players. Let me give you one guy that I'm steering clear of this year and not because I doubt his talent. I think he has a chance to be an unbelievable player. He was drafted incredibly high, but in his rookie year from a fantasy standpoint, and I may regret this and I may live to eat these words in his rookie year. Kyle Pitts is going around three or four, right? Mm-hmm. That seems like a high fantasy pick for a guy we haven't seen do it at the NFL level. He may be yeah. a Hall of Fame talent. He's the highest drafted tight end ever. But think about how many rookie tight ends have made a big impact in their rookie year. Maybe he'll be different. He might be. He's got that talent. But, again, I don't know too many rookie tight ends who have jumped off the board in their rookie year. You? No, they just don't exist. It's very rare. I mean, it took Evan Ingram is the only top 10 tight end in a long time as a rookie. And do you remember what it took for that? I mean, it took him being basically their number one receiver because their whole team was hurt. I remember that game in Denver. I think it was like their top four or five receivers were out and it was him. Like that's all they had at that point. That's what it took for a rookie tight end to clear the top 10 in fantasy. And you could say, well, no one's been drafted this high and that's fine. But look at Travis Kelsey is you know uh, and Rob Gronkowski some of these guys were you know the best receive uh, best tight ends in NFL history and they were not consistent tight end ones certainly paying off this ADP as rookies it took a while for them to develop and it very well could be for Kyle Pitts who by the way to your point very young very young player too he's not coming in at 24 he's coming in at you know 2021 he's super young and Mike Kyle Pitts this year I guarantee has three four games where there are huge numbers, five catches, 96 yards, two TDs. And you look at the talent and you say, oh, I see why Atlanta drafted him where it did. But from a fantasy standpoint, week in, week out production, put me down and I'm not going to use a high pick on him this season. And I know there are going to be games probably against me where the guy goes (laughs) off. Okay. But it's not going to be on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. In my mind, let's see if I'm proven wrong. I'm, I'm with you, especially when you can get a more polished player like TJ Hawkinson, who has a 80 catch ceiling in the same range or Mark Andrews, who's done it already. You know, these guys I projected higher and they're going often behind Kyle Pitts. So I believe in the talent, love him in dynasty. 
but it takes tight ends some time to develop. So I am with you 100% on this one. Hey, Mike, I want to thank you very much for the time today, for the fantasy advice, for those who want more of it. Please go to Mike Clay's Ultimate Draft Board on ESPNplus.com. And Mike, thank you very much. Good luck this fantasy season and appreciate your help today. Thank you very much, Adam. And there is Mike Clay from ESPN offering some fancy football advice. Got me thinking a lot of different ways. I am in two fancy football leagues. One's a 12-team league uh, with some people in my neighborhood who work in the financial industry. Another is the more trumpeted 16-team war room league that has a bunch of people who work at ESPN, like the Hasselbeck brothers and Rex Ryan and Teddy Bruschi and Chris Mortensen. Matthew Berry, and this year, Mina Kimes. This is the league that really means the most, that I've never won, that I've had a couple of really good teams in, that I am targeting this year. And when you hear Mike Clay talk, you just start thinking about who you're going to pick. And those are great days. The fancy football draft days, two of the best days of the year. Nothing like getting ready for your fancy football draft. Good luck to everybody with their fancy football draft. Also hope everybody got to watch the series White Lotus on HBO that wrapped up Sunday night. If you haven't, sit down, binge watch it. Crazy fun. A lot of interesting content there. Highly recommended if you haven't watched the White Lotus yet. And as we get ready to wrap up this podcast, the weekly golf update is we had Webb Simpson in our weekly golf pool this week. That was the biggest emotional roller coaster ride that I have ever been on all season long in 22 weeks. With two weeks to go, Webb Simpson took me on an adventure that I will never forget. Double bogey the first hole the first day on Saturday. The only triple bogey of the whole tournament. On Sunday, he's doing horrible tanking and then comes to life on the back nine with an eagle 175 yards out, holds it. I was going crazy and then misses 10 feet worth of combined birdie putts on 15 and 16 he made either one of them either one the guys in the playoff for first place instead finishes tied for seventh wins over two hundred thousand dollars which gives me two hundred one thousand points in my pool me and my team now sit in first place two weeks to go we're about two hundred seventy-five thousand points up on the second place team the northern trust is this weekend i'm actually going on thursday planning to go i know it's supposed to rain here in the metropolitan area, but I'm planning to go to encourage my golfer and let him know how much I need him in the final two weeks of my golf pool. So let's go, whoever that is, I have an idea of who it'll be, but that golf pool has provided me endless thrills and excitement. I appreciate everybody bearing with me as I ride this emotional roller coaster. and Webb Simpson, man, that guy tortured me and took a year or two off my life this weekend, but all good. It worked out in the end. All right, before we sign off on today's episode, let me quickly tell you about black history. Always, This new podcast is in partnership with The Undefeated that takes a deep dive into the stories of now and tomorrow that empower and inspire. That's Black History Always. Listen wherever you find your podcast. Also, ESPN Plus subscribers, join an ESPN Plus Fantasy Football League now for a chance to win $250,000. Sweepstakes is U.S. only, 18 or older, no purchase necessary. Visit ESPN.com backslash ESPN plus football rules. That's ESPN.com backslash ESPN plus football rules for full details and official rules. I want to thank Kirk Herbstreet. Wish him luck with his new book, Out of the Pocket, Football, Fatherhood, and College Game Day Saturdays. 
I want to thank Mike Clay for the fancy football advice. I want to thank my great producer, Christina Buswell, for putting up with me and putting this podcast together. And thank you, the listener, for tuning in to another Adam Schefter podcast. Please join us again next week when we'll be back with more information, insight, and analysis. Until then, have a great week. Be well, stay safe, and enjoy the Northern Trust.